So we're in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, each of the letters ends that way. And it's kind of a scary statement. He who has an ear, let him hear. What about everybody else? Sorry, you're out. And that's why it's kind of a scary statement. As we've been looking at these seven congregations, I've presented to you more than once this seven-point outline. Each of the seven congregations, the letters follow this outline. First, the letter is written to an ambassador or an angel in a certain city. And that city is mentioned by name. That's Numbers 1 and 2. The third part in the outline is part of Messiah, his character is revealed. And we'll see that with each of the churches. Fourthly, the congregation's good deeds are mentioned. And then fifthly, the congregation's shortcomings or bad deeds are mentioned. Sixth, a warning is given. And seven, a promise is given. Last week, we looked at Numbers 1 through 4. Today, we'll look at 5, 6, and 7. Number 5 is the congregation's shortcomings. Well, this congregation doesn't have any. There are none mentioned. That doesn't mean this congregation was filled with perfect people never doing anything wrong. It just means unlike the other congregations that are being written to, they're not in imminent danger of being judged. They're not entrenched in some evil sin that's going to destroy their church. They have their struggles, just like every church has their struggles, but they're doing well. They're a healthy church. They're walking with God the way they're supposed to. And that is a beautiful thing to see in this list of seven churches. So, nothing to say. Number five, no shortcomings mentioned. Number six, a warning is given. You would think if they don't have any shortcomings, (laughs) there wouldn't be a need for a warning, right? Because all the other warnings for the other churches were, hey, you're doing all these evil things. Stop doing these evil things or I'm going to bust you. Those are the warnings. But since they're not doing any evil things, you would think we'd get to skip the warning too. But no, there is a warning. It's in verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The warning is just because you're walking strong with God now, doesn't mean you don't have to be careful. You can still slip. You can still stumble. You know that, that very famous passage of Scripture that everybody knows? So if you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. And then pride leads to destruction and arrogance to downfall. When people think they're doing good, they get comfortable. They get lazy. They stop watching. And that's when things fall apart. So Jesus' warning to them was, hey, you guys are doing great. Just be careful. Watch your back. Watch your step. Don't stumble. I've got this little video that I think illustrates it very nicely. You ready, Joe? 
F, not an A, B, C, or D. An F, I don't make Fs. I never make Fs. I'm the best writer in my class. I go to competition, not for sports or band, but for writing. Teacher kept saying, check your sources, check your sources. I don't have time to go through and check every source that I find. Doesn't she know who I am? I did wait till the night before, but that hasn't hurt me in the past. Maybe what I wrote was so brilliant that she just didn't get it. And then she goes on and on about get other people to look over your writing. And how is that supposed to go? Am I supposed to ask my parents who aren't good writers if they like my writing? And she can't possibly infer that I have a friend look at my writing. A friend who doesn't even know where the commas go. Yeah, that's gonna help me. Stupid teacher. Or maybe stupid me. Maybe I deserve an F. Maybe I actually do need help. Maybe I'm not the best writer in my class. Pride goes before a fall. You got to be careful. You know, I was doing something interesting this morning. When I get to church, I grab my notes, and then I go hide so I can study my notes without being interrupted. And recently, I've been doing my own slides. Well, I'm not used to doing that. So I got through my notes about halfway. And in my notes, by the way, see all those red marks? That's when I'm supposed to click for a slide. But I'm not used to clicking for slides. So while I'm studying my notes for my sermon, I'm going like this. I'm practicing. I'll get to the point where eventually I won't have to practice anymore. But the idea is you can't just take these things for granted, even little things like this, because then you just mess up. And the more serious the things are, the less you can take them for granted. I know some people, I've seen this time and time again, and you talk to any mature Christian in here, and I bet you they'll say they've seen the exact same thing. People on fire for God, they're there every time the doors open. And then something gets in the way and they don't show up once. And the world didn't fall apart. Everything's okay. Next thing you know it, they don't show up twice. Now they're not there every time the door opens. Maybe they're there once a week. And now they were serving in ministry, but now, you know, they're there a couple times a month. How many of you have seen that before? Let me see your hands. Yeah, look at all the hands. You got to watch. You got to be careful. All right, so after the warning, Jesus then goes into the promises. Since you've kept my command, you've kept my command to endure patiently. I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. The hour of trial. This is another one of those places in the Bible where the English word doesn't work. This word hour occurs many times in the Bible, but never does it mean hour. What's an hour? 60 minutes. That's what we call an hour. But in the Bible, that's not how it's used. Hour means a specific moment. It doesn't even necessarily have to do with time at all. In fact, often hour just means immediately, right then. 
that specific moment. Sometimes it's a future specific moment. But all hour means is a specific moment. So if I were to translate the Bible, I would take that word hour altogether and I would translate it as the context deserves, referring to a specific moment. It's not that different from Spanish. There's a play on that word too, or use of that word. When I say ahora, which means right now, but it's got the word hora in it, which is the word hour. So I'm not saying in an hour, I'm saying right now, this hour, this moment. And that's how the word is in the Bible too. So Jesus tells them he's going to spare them from some specific moment in the future when the whole world is going through a tribulation, some sort of trial. He's going to spare the church of Philadelphia. What is he talking about? He doesn't say, and I don't know. He promised them, I will spare you from a universal tragedy. Which one? Don't know. History doesn't tell us. So maybe it was a famine. Maybe there was a famine that swept the region, but the church in Philadelphia had no worries. Yeah, they were fine. It could have been that. It makes sense, but I don't know. We'll look at that in just a moment. It could have been a persecution. Maybe other churches were being persecuted at one specific time, but they weren't. Could be that. How many of you have ever heard of the Galen Plague? And don't put up your hand if you listened to my sermon yesterday. How many of you have ever heard of the Galen Plague? Yeah, nobody's ever heard of it. But during this time frame, just within that generation, like 160, 170 AD, this plague swept through the Roman Empire, and it killed like an estimated 5 million people. Now, their population wasn't as large as our population. So the percentage of the population it wiped out compared to our population, huge. In fact, when it hit, you know, the second run came through, through the, the empire, in Rome, 2,000 deaths a day. Imagine that happening in Tucson, 2,000 people dying a day. Maybe they were spared the Galen Plague. I don't know. I just know there were a lot of crazy things that were happening. It was an earthquake-ridden area. Maybe they were spared one of the earthquakes. Don't know. I just know Jesus promised them that a certain thing would happen that would have huge ramifications for the empire, and they would be spared. Now, that passage, it says, um, I will spare you from the hour of trial that's come upon the world. A lot of people take that and they look forward to the rapture. Say, ah, he's promising that the church will be raptured. You know, I do believe in the, the, the preacher of rapture, but I don't think that verse is a, is a strong verse for that. You know, he's talking to the church of Philadelphia. He's not talking to generations 2,000 years removed. Is it possible he is? Yes. But is it likely? No. It's, more, it's better just to look at what, what's going on in Philadelphia and say, hey, we don't know what they were spared and then leave it at that. At least that's my take on it. But God promised to spare them from a specific trial. What about all the other trials? He didn't promise to spare them from those. It's funny how some people uh, think that God will always deliver us from all our troubles. And they'll look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are spared from the fiery furnace, and say, see, God delivers his people. And they'll look at Daniel in the lion's den and say, see, God delivers his people. And they'll look at Egypt and say, see, God delivers his people. Yeah, but 
We were in Egypt for 400 years. Imagine you were there for year 100. Where's God? I, I thought he's supposed to deliver his people. Year 200, where's God? I, I thought he was going to deliver his people. Year 300, where's God? Yeah, maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared. But what about the millions of martyrs who weren't spared? So just because God promised the church of Philadelphia that he would spare them from a universal calamity, I don't want you to think that God is promising you as a Christian that he's going to spare you from all calamities. In fact, you already know this. You may not know it theologically, but you know it practically. If you've ever had a calamity in your life and you're a Christian, let me see your hand. All right, so what, why do I need to convince you that these name it, claim it preachers are wrong? You've, you live life. You know they're wrong. You know what the Bible says is wrong. So, I mean, it... <laughs> You know what I just said was wrong. <laughs> oh, yoy, yoy. So he offers them some promises. The first promise is that he would spare them from one major specific trial. More promises. Verse 12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him a new name. A couple things in there that I want to draw your attention to. Pillars and names. I don't know about you, but I like pillars. Pillars are cool. What would an archaeological site be without pillars? Imagine that picture you're looking at with none of those pillars there. Yeah, boring. Nobody would be even interested. Pillars are cool. And in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, some of those pillars were, you know, they shot up there 100 feet, some of them. 40 to 60 feet was average, common. You walked into one of the buildings or one of the ancient temples and it was like this. Wow. And that's what they wanted to do invoke awe. That's why a lot of the ancient churches and cathedrals have these huge vaulted ceilings so you could get in and get a sense of the majesty and grandeur and greatness of God. You were just awe, inspired by the bigness of it all. Pillars are not only cool, but they served a very important function. They are what held the building up. <laughs> and they were strong they were made out of solid marble more often than not, or big chunks of marble stacked one on top of the other. It took a lot to knock down a pillar, to knock down one of those ancient buildings. Oftentimes, these massive earthquakes would devastate entire towns. But here and there, there'd still be a pillar standing, which is pretty amazing when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the earthquakes between seven and nine on the Richter scale. Buildings that today can't stand up. And some of their pillars still stood. Here's uh, one of the ancient websites, uh, archaeology websites I read said this. Due to a series of ancient earthquakes, there isn't much left of ancient Philadelphia. And archaeology is limited to foundation stones and a few Roman columns, a few pillars. So when you go through all the rubble, you can still find the pillars. So when... God starts calling people pillars or telling them they're established like pillars. 
it's the most firm, you know, picture, word picture he can use, really. Pillars, pillars, pillars throughout Scripture are used in a euphemistic way. They represent something. Let me give you an example from the Apostle Paul's writings. For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me, and they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So it says, James, Peter, and John were pillars. How many of you ever heard of Peter, James, and John? Raise your hand. Yeah, their reputation lasts to this very day. What does it mean they were pillars? These were the foundation of the church in Jerusalem. Everybody knew who they were. You still know who they are. They were it. Pillars, they're called. What else would you call a lasting, enduring, strong, influential person but a pillar? So in that passage we looked at a couple of moments ago, pillars were associated with names. I will write their name on this and my name on them and so on and so forth. I've heard it said that faithful city leaders in ancient Rome or Greece sometimes would have their names carved on the pillars, which is pretty cool. Unless somebody took it off intentionally, it would be there forever. And I say forever because, you know, as far as we know human existence, things made out of stone last forever. Think of the pyramids. How long has that great pyramid been there? Well, they say that when Abraham walked by it, it would have been about 500 years old. Some people even think the Sphinx saw the great flood of Noah. I don't think so, but some people think so. I don't think so. (laughs) Mark, come on. (laughs) But stones last forever. You get your name carved on a stone, you're set forever. In Revelation chapter 21, it says the foundation of the New Jerusalem, it specifically mentions 12 foundation stones with the names of each of the 12 apostles on one stone. Forever. And then these believers are promised a special name, and their name is identified with God, with his son, and with his new temple. So the believers of Philadelphia were told that they would become pillars in God's temple. It's a powerful expression of permanence, influence, hope, especially for a people who lived in an earthquake-prone area. You know, we don't have earthquakes here. Oh, yeah, I remember back in 94 we felt a little tremble. No, we don't have earthquakes here. I'm from Southern California. We had earthquakes. Here, there are no earthquakes. In Southern California, you go through earthquake drills in school growing up. You know, okay, earthquake drill, what do you do? Everybody, jump under your desk. Why do we jump under our desk? So when the roof falls in, it falls on the desk and not on you. I'm thinking, my desk is going to keep the roof from crushing me? This seems like a wasted drill to me. But they teach you. You know, here in in, in Tucson, we've got these, um, it's monsoon season. And if the live wires hit the ground, they're always live. Don't ever go near them. You've seen that commercial from DEP? What's it called? Something or something, stay alive? I don't know. They're just trying to tell you, don't touch them. I never got those commercials in Southern California. 
because our wires didn't come down every year. I got the earthquake thing. You don't get the earthquake thing here because you don't have earthquakes here. Depending on where you're at depends on what kind of warnings you get and what kind of things you look to for your stability. Under the desk and doorways. If there's an earthquake, this is what they tell me to do. Stand in a doorway. Why? Well, because that's the strongest place in the house. In our houses, in, in our office buildings, the doorways are double reinforced. They're our version of pillars. I always thought the whole earthquake thing was stupid. I'm going outside. That's it. I'm going outside. No, it's not safe to go outside. Things will fall down. Uh, they're going to fall down inside more than they will outside. But you won't make it out. Something will hit you in the head. I'll take my chances. I'm not going to just sit there and let the building fall down on me. I'm running. Well, maybe you can't make it to the door. Well, I'm going to try. But I don't have that problem here. I'm told not to drive through low-lying areas during a monsoon. Now, I'm telling you, don't do it. I know it's tempting. But in this place, we're told, don't do it. We even have a law. What do they call it? The idiot law or something? The stupid motorist law? That's just wrong. Because, you know, not everybody who gets stuck in a wash is stupid. Maybe most of them, but not all of them. That's not nice. That's unkind. That hurts people's feelings. Well, there's another way that the word pillars is used in Scripture. And to me, it's the most significant. Let's take a look. 1 Timothy 3.15. If I'm delayed, you'll know how, to, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the congregation of the living God or the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. See how God's church is associated with a pillar and a foundation of truth? It's associated. If life throws spiritual earthquakes your way, where do you want to be? In the church. Because that's your foundation. That's where your pillar is. That's where your stability is. You know, after 9-11, our attendance almost doubled. I mean, people were flooding churches all over the country. When things start shaking, and I'm talking about emotionally, people flood into churches, and that's good. But why are we flooding into churches only after the roof has fallen down? After things are shaken up. Don't you want to be with the pillar while it's shaken up and before it's shaken? Don't you want to be prepared for the shakeup? Listen, pull Pastor Michael aside, pull Pastor Jose aside. I haven't talked to them, but I bet you anything, they could tell you story after story after story, and they'll say Steve was right, of people who call themselves Christians and are just loosely tied to the church until things start falling apart, and then they're there. What's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, only that those things wouldn't have fallen apart if they were already at the church in most instances. Their lives have fallen apart because they unplugged from their spiritual power source. They disassociated themselves from their brothers and sisters who could have encouraged them, supported them, strengthened them, and spoken truth into their lives and kept them from doing stupid. But after a year, two, three of this, then things shake down, and then they come into the church begging for help. There's only so much you can do after the roof has already fallen down. It's time to rebuild. 
Can't take away the pain or the sorrow, but we can rebuild. And my advice for rebuilding is plug back into the church. Start fellowshipping again. Tie into God, tie into God's people. This is the pillar so that you won't be shaken next time around. The congregation of God is either or associated with the pillar and foundation of truth. God has given us a rock-solid resource for spiritual security and truth here at Book of Life. Life throws spiritual earthquakes our way. It's going to happen. But those tied to church have a very strong foundation to lean upon. Those who are not, I guess they're just going to have to run for the door and hope for the best. 1 Corinthians 10.12 comes to mind, and I'll close with this. I already gave it to you at the beginning of the sermon. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for giving us the warning from the church at Philadelphia. And thank you for sharing with us the promise that we can have a pillar. We don't have to be shaken. We can be secure if we just follow your word and walk with your people and stay closely tied to you and to one another. But we get distracted, God. So please help us to no longer be distracted, to walk strong with Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, this thought was running through my mind as these guys get ready. Let me share it with you. And maybe for those of you who are good with videography, we could actually make a short film. I would love to see it. But imagine this. Some guy's just sitting there, and then you see Jesus reaching out to him and calling him with, with a big smile on his face. And the guy stands up, and he's ready to walk to Jesus, and then the TV turns on. And he goes like this. And the siren song of the TV's got his attention, and he's just watching. And Jesus is going like this, and the TV's competing for his attention. Then finally, he turns off the TV. And then all of a sudden, a marching band runs by. And they've got their drums and their trumpets, and, and his, he's distracted. And Jesus is going, no, no, this way, this way. And the marching band walks by, and he gets a, gets a glimpse of Jesus, and he goes, oh, yeah. And then a guy with a suit and a tie walks by holding cash. And the guy is distracted by the cash. Isn't this our life? <laughs> Jesus is going, come, come, come. And he's got the goods. He's got all the goods. And we're just like these little puppies chasing after little bones. Stand strong. God bless you.